0: Let's, uh, let's set the narrative for um, the passage that I'm going to read. It's going to take a little reading. Genesis chapter 24 is the longest narrative in the book of um, Genesis. Um, here's, here's the narrative. We're in the book of Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, right? How does the book start? God creates the heavens and the earth. It's, it's amazing. And, uh, and, and, and he creates man, and there's intimate fellowship between God and man, Um, We're in paradise, everything that anybody could ever dream of, long for. uh, We have it all, and yet um, our first parents blow it up. Now, God can walk away from his creation, but instead he enters into it. He pursues um, them, and he announces that he intends to redeem everything that he made. He intends to make it all uh, again new, Um, and he's going to do that through the seed of Eve through the woman, uh, that that there will be a line throughout all of history that will ultimately result in the Redeemer coming from heaven through that line into the earth. Abraham is named um, the head of that line. God chooses Abraham out of a pagan culture, out of a pagan family, makes Abraham his own. We know there's tension in Genesis because God promises Abraham three things. He promises Abraham that he'll give him many children, like the the sands on the seashore, like the stars in the sky. He promises Abraham that he'll give him a land, and he promises Abraham that one will come from him that will be a blessing to the whole earth. Well, all that sounds great. Last week, Adam Jones preached an excellent sermon on the sort of first down payment of that land. You remember, Abraham buys a tomb, uh, buys a cave in which to bury his wife, uh, in the land of Canaan. So now, actually starts to possess the land. But they got a big problem. Abraham has one child by Sarah, and that child is Isaac, and that child's 40 years old, and he's not married. So this line that's gonna produce a Messiah somewhere out there in history isn't even getting going uh, right there. Okay, you got it? That's where we're at? So if you're able, well, don't stand, because I got a lot to read. Some of you guys are gonna fall over. Um, so I'm on uh, chapter 24, and I'm going to read. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going uh, give, to give you the gist of it as we go. You ready? Now, Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, Eliezer is his name, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all uh, of Abraham's house, now put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven uh, and earth. Now that was, that was a practice back then. That was to put your hand in sort of an intimate place that showed the solemnity of this tithe and of this pledge, this, this vow you're gonna take. And, and I'm just thankful for cultural customs that go away uh, through time. <laughs> um, but this is important. I make you swear by the Lord the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman, if I go all the way to, that, uh, all the way to your homeland, your, your old homeland, and I find a woman, perhaps she may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to that land from which you came, and Abraham says, "No, no, you may not do that. You not, not, do not take my son back to that land. God has given us this land. If you take him back there, he marries the woman, they settle there. We're going to be out of what God has clearly told us to do. See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord the God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, "To your offspring, I will give this land." He will send his angels before you, was Abraham said. God's going to do this, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this ma- matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, by the way, this is only the second prayer recorded in the book of Genesis. The first is when Abraham prays over um, Sodom. Um, Here's only the second prayer. Eliezer prays, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master look at what it says before he had even finished speaking behold rebecca who was born to bethel the son of milca the wife of nahor abraham's brother came out with her water jar on her shoulder the young woman was very attractive in appearance a maiden whom no man had known good start right She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they finish drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water and drew for all his camels. And the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels, and he said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said, I am the daughter of Bethel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor, she added, "We have plenty of to both straw and fodder and room to spend the night." And the man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, "Blessed be the God, the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love to and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman." Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. <clears throat> I'm going to move to verse 50. Hanging in there? Everybody hanging in there? Good. We need coffee brought in or anything? Okay. Verse 50. So then Laban, her brother, and and Bethel answered and said, after the the messenger explained everything that had happened to them, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And he brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. This is the bridal price he's paying. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and they spent the night there. They arose in the morning. He said, send me away to my master. They said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days, then she may go. He said, do not delay me. since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go. So they said, let us call the young woman and ask her. So in the custom of that day, she had the right. She did not have to consent to this. Family didn't force this on her. Now the ball is passed to Rebecca. So they called her and said, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent her away. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse and Abraham's servant, And his men, and they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Do you realize that that prayer was answered? Do you realize who the answer is? You. He prayed for you. You are her offspring. Isn't that amazing? Then Rebekah and her young woman arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Bir Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and she covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought Rebekah into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inspired word amen and amen. It's a love story, right? It's a love story. Everybody loves love stories, right? I mean, almost every book is a love story, right? Almost every, when you go to the theater, it's a, it's a love story. Even if it's not the main story, they manage to throw a love story in there, don't they? Just to pique your interest and keep your attention. And movies. Most movies are love stories, If I say to my wife, do you want to watch a movie? I know that to hook her interest, she's kind of wavering. I'll say, listen, why don't we watch this one? We'll scroll through Netflix. Why don't we watch this one? And then I say the magic words. It's a love story. It's called Saving Private Ryan. It's a beautiful... (laughs) you don't want to watch... That one, there's another love story I love, and it's a series called Band of Brothers. Honey, you pick. Um, everybody wants to be a part of a love story, but some, you know, are, are more improbable than others. So I grew up in Miami, Florida when I was 17 years old. I graduated high school, and I went to a college in Jackson, um, Mississippi. I'd never been to Jackson. I'd never been to Mississippi. I'd never been to this college called Bellhaven College, First I'd ever been there. I walked on the campus as a student. Um, so that's where I was. My wife graduated the exact same year uh, from high school in Chicago. Her high school had like four or 5,000 students, uh, which was five times as many as the college um, uh, that I was going to. Um, she went to college at Arizona State University. I was um, a follower of Christ at that point in my life. My wife was not a follower of Christ at that point, in her life, she went to Arizona State University and, uh, and she, she met a Christian. Only one Christian her whole freshman year had a profound influence on in her life and she became a Christian, a follower of Jesus. At the end of that year, she said, if I want to be a follower of Jesus, I better um, <clears throat> find a better situation uh, to grow. And uh, She had a grandmother who was a Christian and the grandmother lived in Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, so that Chicago girl and this Miami guy met um, or the, the very beginning of our sophomore years at Bellhaven College in Jackson, Mississippi. We were in a class together right away. As a matter of fact, it was an Old Testament survey class. And, and, and I just have to say, I mean, the moment she walked in the class and laid eyes on me, she... <laughs> Smitten is the word. <laughs> improbable. Just like Isaac and uh, and Rebecca. Utterly improbable. So we're going to ask the question this morning, how does this come about? What do we learn about it? What do we learn even um, maybe wisdom related to um, who we would marry, who we would have our children Mary. And thirdly, what does it have to do with us? What does it have to do with that greater love story uh, that courses through the Bible right on into history all the way into our lives today? So you ready to go? Ready? Got a sermon outline? We're going to talk about the love story. We're going to talk about the role of providence in the love story, the providence of God. So when the story begins... We know that uh, the likelihood of Abraham's line continuing is dim, right? Abraham is old. Don't you think the Bible's relentless, right? Abraham was old, well advanced in years. Um, Abraham's old. Sarah is dead. Isaac, his only son with Sarah, is 40 years old. He's unmarried. Abraham is in Canaan. There are no people there for Isaac to marry. This is a pagan. He's surrounded by pagan um, people. There's no pool from which to choose a godly wife for his son. So Abraham launches Mission Impossible, right? He gets his servant Eliezer and commissions him to go back to his homeland 500 miles away. All the way back to Mesopotamia. Uh, all the way back to what is modern-day Iraq, from what is modern-day Israel, where Abraham is. And um, to find a wife for his son. Now, I mean, it's like, go find a needle in a haystack. I, you know, So j- just the, the tension in this um, um, uh, passage is that he's got to go all the way back and find a woman. Um, he has to get the consent of her family. He has to get the consent of the woman. He has to get the woman to come all the way back with him. And then he has to get Isaac's consent to all of this. Don't put your money on this, right? Um, this, is, uh, this, this seems uh, highly unlikely that it's going to take place. What are the odds? So what happens, right? Um, listen, this task for Eliezer is impossible and he knows it. So what do we find in the Bible? He stops. Abraham gives him the assignment. you're going to go all the way back. Months of journeying to go back and find this woman, get her and bring her back for my son. What does Eliezer do as he sets out? God, help me. I can't do this. This is a ridiculous task. I've sworn to it, but I can't pull this off. God, you've got to bring this woman. You've got to do this. And what does the Bible say? He's still praying when what? When Rebecca walks uh, towards him uh, when he gets to that uh, town in Mesopotamia. Listen, um, God leads him right to Rebecca. God leads Rebecca right to him. Now, this is not a miracle. This is what we call God's sovereignty, God's providence, at work. God is at work. He's always at work. God didn't just create the world, but he runs the world and he directs all things in the world. God's hand might be hidden, but he's completely in charge, right? Um, God had promised to extend the line of his people all the way to Jesus and all the way to you, all the way to me. You got it? God's at work. God's doing this. God's carrying it out. I want to remind you of that. We live in the muddle of this world and we live in the muddle of our daily thinking and our lives and we feel confused and we don't know what to do and powerless. I want you to know that God's at work, He's always at work. And I want you to lean into that, right? I love what it says in verse 27 of, of, uh, of chapter 24. He prays, after he meets Rebecca. he prays, Eliezer does, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness. He promised that he would do this. He promised that he would give him many children. And and Eliezer says, and it's happening. As for me, the Lord has led me. God led me. Do you know God taking you by the hand and leading you? He leadeth me, Adam Hill Let us in singing a chorus. Oh, blessed thought. Oh, words with heavenly comfort fraught. Whate'er I do, where'er I be still, tis God's hand that leadeth me. Listen, I know something about the the quandary that the servant of Abraham faced with the impossible task because I'm a pastor. People ask, what's it like to be a pastor? I have one simple word. It's, it, (laughs) I have one word, and I'm gonna say three. Um, (laughs) Um, The word, the word, overwhelmed is the word. That's the word. It's a sense that um, the needs of people, the grief of people, the struggle of people's lives, the need for people to be discipled, shepherded, guided, cared for, loved, let alone my own children, my own grandchildren, uh, loving my neighbors, and on and on it goes. It's overwhelming. I can't do it. And guess what God says? That's the point. That's the point. Lean into me. I'll lead you. I'll take you by the hand. I'm the one doing this thing, right? Trust me. I experience it when I'm preaching. Very often I'm preaching, and I've, sometimes I've got uh, three or four things uh, written down. I'm only going to say one of them, and, uh, and I don't know which one I'm going to say. Um, and very often something comes to my mind that I haven't even written down. I've spent hours working on a message and all of a sudden something comes to my mind and I'm thinking about saying it and, um, and, and very often I'll say that thing and afterwards somebody will, will come up to me and say, you know what you said at this certain point? It, it changed me. And I'll think, why do I even study? Why do I even do all this work? You know. Sometimes they even come up and say, you know, when you made this certain point, and they'll re- recount the point, that, 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 that got me. It was an arrow to my soul. And they completely misunderstood what I said. That's not even what I said. <laughs> I mean, as a pastor, you see it all the time. God is, I'm firing arrows, but God is, is, is taking those arrows to wherever he wants, right? Into the hearts of um, people. So often... Um, experience. He leadeth me. He leadeth me. Are you leaning into the providence of God? Are you? Are you leaning in? God, I don't know what I'm doing. God, I got kids that don't know you. I got grandkids that don't know you. God, I've got neighbors that, uh, that don't know you. God, I've got a work situation. I can't resolve it. I got an employee situation. I can't resolve it. God, I got money problems. I can't resolve them. Lean into God. It's the providence of God. He's at work. You can't see it, but He's always at work. He's got His hands on this. Sybil Hampton is a hero. Sybil Hampton tells the story that in 1959, she was one of the first black students at Little Rock Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. You remember the National Guard and the integration of that school. Well, they actually had to close the whole school down because there were so many riots and everything. And when they reopened the school in 1959, um, Sybil was the only child, only black child in 10th grade. National Guardsmen had to line the steps. No white students would speak to her. The walls of, uh, uh, the, the white students would, would press against the walls of the hallway when she passed down, even to avoid the horror of maybe touching her. When students spoke to her, the only time they spoke to her, they'd often hiss the N-word. The only time she spoke was when it was her turn to read the Bible in her class in the morning. So here's an era in our culture where they read the Bible in the schools. And yet they, what? What? They hated. But when it came her time to read the Bible, her turn, every single time she read Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes towards the mountains. Where will my help come from? My help comes from what? The Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. What a glorious testimony to her classmates. A scared little 10th grader leaning into the providence of God. That in God's providence, He had her going to school in this absolute hellish environment. And yet He was with her. And He was for her. And she could walk down those hallways knowing she was a child of God. How about you? Frederick Buchner, I love what he said. He said, A Christian is one who points at Christ and says, I don't know that I can prove a thing about him, but there's something about his eyes and his voice. There's something about the way he carries his head, his hands, the way he carries his cross, and the way he carries me. Do you know that? You know, I don't want you to leave worship this morning enraged about the uh, way things are going in our culture. God's in charge. God's at work. He's always at work. Let go. Let go of that anger and that fear. And I don't want you walking out of here saying, gosh, I'm such a failure, just beaten down with your own personal failure. How about doing this? Lean in. Lean into God's providence. He knows you. He loves you. He has you. He's at work. Second, second then, what do we learn from this love story? There's a clear priority here, right? What's the priority of Abraham's life? It's the priority of the mission of God. Um, the passing of the faith to the next generation, right? Right? The preservation of the covenant line. So, do you see how intentional Abraham is to keep his offspring and his grandchildren from being syncretized into the Canaanite culture, from absorbing the unbelieving culture around them? Abraham is old. Some of us are old. Abraham knows time is running out, he's got a mission to fulfill. What's his mission? to get his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren into the family of God, right? This is gonna be his legacy. He's intentional about it. Eliezer, take my son. Go all the way and find a wife for my son, but you may not take a wife for my son from amidst the women of the Canaanites, right? The priority of his mission. What does he say it in verse 24? Right? The last two lines You will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. You may not, and you will not take my son back there either um, to the land of Mesopotamia to live. Abraham is intentional, he's resolved. He sends his best servant out. So I ask you, how resolved are you? Is this to be your legacy? Is this the most important thing to you in your life? I mean, it matters if you're 80 and 90, but it matters if you're 20 and 30 and 40 just as much. This is the one thing you've got to get accomplished. You do not have to get your child in the best of schools. Wonderful thing. It could be a good goal. You may have a really accomplished child, right? You don't have to get your child in a college athletic scholarship. Might be a gift to have that, God bring that to pass. What are your goals? I gotta bring my kid to Disney every year they're growing up. I want my child to have fun in our house. I don't know, there's a lot of good and worthy things, but goal number one has to be what? I gotta get my child to Jesus. I've gotta get my child in the family of God. God. So here's a couple of points of wisdom. Resolve that you and your children will only marry followers of Jesus. And the Bible's filled with this wisdom right there in Deuteronomy 7. You shall not intermarry, God's telling his people, with the people around them. Giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Got it? It's just a matter of, um, of accountability, right? I mean, compatibility. You, you know, a prospective spouse for you or your children, they might be fun, they might be athletic, uh, attractive, smart, from a good family, but if they're not, if they don't belong to Jesus, it's a no. It's a no. Why? It's simply a matter of compatibility, right? Um, You know, if Jesus is the center of your life, and you're convinced that to have life is to have Jesus, and the purpose of your life is to glorify him, And so it's going to shape every part of your life. It's going to shape who you marry. That's what we're talking about. But it's going to shape how you spend your money, how you do your recreation, how you raise your kids, how you discipline your kids, where your kids go to um, school. It's going to shape the priority of everything. It's going to shape how you retire, what you do in your retirement. Everything revolves around Jesus. Imagine then marrying someone who, who doesn't know Jesus, doesn't belong to Jesus. It's utterly incompatible. It's like somebody from Alabama marrying somebody who cheers for Auburn. <laughs> it won't work. <laughs> now, sometimes people will say, you, you know, you're, you're, you're dating that girl or you're dating that guy. Are they a Christian? And people say, oh, they believe in God. I checked. They believe in God. Do they go to church? No. Family go to church? No. But they believe in God, so it's good. Check, 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 check. Well, listen, I I mean, a gorilla could believe in God. You know what I mean? It's um, Believing in God, like I said a couple weeks ago, I um, I believe in George Washington, but I don't worship him. I'm not a Washingtonian. I don't get up every morning and read about George Washington so that I can bring my life into conformity to the will of George Washington. I don't love and pray to and count on George Washington for eternal salvation, right? You can, believe in, you can believe there is a God. You can believe Jesus is the Son of God. You can believe that Jesus came to earth. You can believe that he died on the cross. You can believe all those things. It doesn't mean you're a follower of Jesus. You've got to find a follower of Jesus. And you've got to pray for that for your children. You've got to urge that um, for your children. It's the most important decision you'll make in your life, and it will shape the trajectory of your family for generations, right? Not only that, you know, you should evaluate their character. You should be slow about these things, slow enough so that you can really get to know character. you got to like that there was a test applied to Rebecca. What did Eliezer say? Who's the woman? Is the woman. How did he know who the woman was? She would do what? She would take her water jar and she would offer him water. What was that test? What would that show? She's a person of hospitality. She's a person of kindness. But on top of that, she would do what? She would water all the camels. There were 10 camels. I don't know how much water it takes for a camel, but people who do say that would mean that she would have gone back to the well 80 to 100 times with her water jar. This would have taken her an extraordinary amount of time. It's a test that reveals not just her kindness and hospitality, but her wisdom, to, willingness to serve and work hard. You've got to think about character. Character. Demonstrated character. My, um, one of my um, daughters, you know, we used to sometimes sit at the dinner table and we say, what's, what's your criteria going to be? You're choosing a spouse, what's your criteria going to be? Give me your top three. She said, Got to be all in on Jesus. Got to be all in on the church. Uh, if, they, if they're not in a church, then I'm not buying that they're all in on Jesus. They got to be all in on Jesus, got to be all in on the church. Uh, she said, two, got to be all in on mission because I don't want to just talk about Jesus. I want to do something about it. That means we're going to have people stay in our house. We're going to give up our own um, comfort. We're going to give our money away. We're going to go to needy people. We're going to do whatever needs to be done. Uh, And I don't have to fight my spouse on that. We're going to do that together, right? That's number two. You know what number three was? He has to be able to throw a spiral with a football because I just can't respect a man that can't throw a spiral with a football. There we go. Last of all, choose, choose with wisdom. Get family counsel, right? You know, it's interesting. If I was preaching this in most of the world today, we would be talking about in most cultures today, the families still choose the spouse for their children. Our culture is an anomaly, right? Because our culture is built around the bedrock of personal autonomy. It's a person's choice. It's the person's. Um, it's up to them. Um, parents don't have any say. And I'm not advocating the opposite. I'm just saying anyone would be wise uh, to take their families if their family uh, counsel is worthy, uh, and if their family, if they don't have family, their family's counsel is whack, that they would uh, find surrogate family to take counsel from. Um, E.V. Hill's sermon—I don't have time to recount it—but E.V. Hill was the pastor of Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles. A booming voice, this African-American civil rights leader and pastor. Uh, His sermon on the funeral at the funeral of his wife may be the best sermon I've ever heard. And I'm going to post it for you guys this week. Every time I listen to it, tears roll down my face. And at one point he talks about marrying his uh, daughter. Uh, Her name was Rose and uh, choosing a a mate for her. And he said, um, he said, "Evie Hill said, you gotta mate them up. You gotta mate your kids up. You can't get no racehorses out of mules. <laughs> oh, that was awesome. Um, yeah, th- that's it. One of my kids, one of my daughters, um, met, a, met a boy on a missions trip. She came home all starry-eyed. And... Um, And uh, she said after the week of them, you know, connecting, she said, uh, he said, well, where do we go from here? I mean, I I, I guess we're dating, right? Uh, Even though they lived in separate parts of our country. And she said, no, we're not dating. There's three things uh, that have to happen first. They knew each other for one week. There's three things that have to happen first. You're going to have to spend a couple weeks and talk to God about this, and so am I. So before anyone of us takes a step forward, we're talking to God about this first. And we're not talking to each other that whole time. Just God. And the second thing you're going to have to do is talk to my dad. This is just a date. We're not talking about getting married. You're going to have to talk to my dad. And then the third thing you're going to have to do is talk to my older brother. I thought that was just brilliant. Not only was she telling that guy that I'm, I s- am submitting to the authority of my older brother, but she was telling her older brother that I expect you to watch out for me because I need your wisdom in this. Brilliant. Listen, I tell every pastor's class, you know, when my kids were little, I said, I'm gonna put two words on my tombstone adam jones referred to it last week be there if you ever come see your old man's grave you're going to see two words be there uh, because i've got an appointment with you in heaven and your dad's waiting for you there and i want you to join me there that's the, that's the purpose of my life and i've told seven rivers church that when we get to heaven we're not meeting at the main gate they're not going to let you in there not if you went to this church I got a key to it, like a back alley entrance and we'll all go in there and there'll be donuts and there'll be ducks there. We'll be able to have some blow up ducks and everything. And, and, uh, and every time one of you comes in, all the seven rivers folks are going to cheer and celebrate and hug you. Another one's made it. Another one's across the Jordan river. Another one's home and I'll be leading the cheering. But every time one of you walks through those gates, I'm going to look over your shoulder because I'm looking for my kids. I want to see if my kids are coming behind you. I don't want to live forever without my babies. So finally, that's the priority. Finally then, this passage is a pointer. It points us to something. I want you to just listen to what I have to say and I'm done. When Eliezer meets Rebecca... He follows her back to her house. He secures her family blessing. He pays the bridal price. And then the question goes to Rebecca, will you leave your family and go all the way back with me? And what does she say? I will go. Thousand and more years later, there's a young, very, very young woman and a messenger of God comes to her and says, you're going to bear the son of God. From the line of Abraham, through Sarah, through Rebecca, that promised child is in your womb. Her name was Mary, right? And what does Mary respond? Yes, sir. sir. I am a bondservant of the Lord. Be it done to me according to thy will. And do you know that the Holy Spirit goes out into the world as the messenger of God and God sends the Holy Spirit out and says, find a bride for my son, Jesus. Jesus. And the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and mind. And he says, I'm looking for a bride for Jesus. I'm looking for those who will be married to God's son. He's the groom, the Bible says. His church is the bride. And so the question's been given to you. What will you say? Because ultimately the story in Genesis 24 is about you. Will you say yes? Will you follow? Will you embrace Jesus? Because this is the love story that you've longed for all your life. You could have the best marriage. You could have the best children. You could have the best family. You could have the best friends. But none of them can satisfy your heart. This is the love story you were created for. And if the Holy Spirit says, come home with me to your husband, say yes. (laughs) Amen. Let's pray. Lord, may the joyous yes of Catherine on the front row be an echo of our own hearts. Yes, yes, yes. It's what I've always longed for. Perhaps you never felt good enough to be a Christian. You're not. You never will be. But he wants you. He chose you. He bids you. Come and be married. Jesus, would you blow us away afresh with the wonder of your seeking